information you can trust, stories you can relate to, and tips and tactics you can apply on your next adventure. Hunting, fishing, camping, and everything in between. This is the Battle Mountain Podcast. This is a Battle Mountain Podcast from the archives. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Jamie Venata, and uh, I live in Toledo, Ohio, and I've been shooting for 28 years now, competitive target archery. Awesome, Jamie. Well, thank you so much for uh, for jumping on the podcast with me today. I'm excited to have you on talking about tournament archery, seeing as I think you are definitely one of the most accomplished female tournament archers in the world right now. Um, You've already kind of introduced yourself, and you've been shooting for quite a while. What? How did you really get into tournaments, and how did you get into archery? I got into archery when I was about 12 years old. My my father picked it up as something to do in the wintertime because we lived in Michigan, so it was cold. And he golfed in the summer, and he just wanted something to occupy the winter hours. And um, and he so he took it up as a as a hobby for himself. But uh, my brother wanted to get into it. And then, of course, if my brother was going to get into it, well, then I was going to get into it. And um, and thank goodness for my competitive spirit, even at that age, because I took to it right away and I haven't stopped. So uh, thanks to my father and thanks to my younger brother for um, kind of spurring me into it. That's awesome. And it's always great when it's like a, a family activity that you can all do together. So in the 20 some odd years you've been shooting competitive archery um you've been to quite a few different world events um when did you go to your first world event what what different world events have you been to since then and and what are your future plans for world events wow um those are really good questions so i will share a memory from my very first world event which was actually a junior world championship and um as as, as a first world event, it was in 1996, so I was just getting out of high school. And um, as, as world events go, it was pretty low-key because, unfortunately, it was actually in the United States. So it was held at the, the training center in San Diego, um, a place I had been multiple times before for training camps and things like that. So my first world experience was the Junior World Championships hosted here in the U.S., um, <laughs> and I had an awesome team. Um, we, an awesome team of girls and there was actually an awesome team of guys and a lot of them are, are still shooting as well. And, uh, and we, as the girls took the gold medal and I ended up individually with a silver to my teammate, Angela Mascarelli. Um, so my, my very first world experience was extremely good. We performed very well. And so that really, um, that and, and all the tournaments I'd had success at before really, you know, it just makes you want more and more and more. So, um, so after shortly after the juniors, I, I, uh, was in my first adult world championships, um, indoor in 1997 in Istanbul, Turkey. And I took fourth individually there and our team took first there. And then, um, shortly thereafter the, um, in the summer, the outdoor world championships were in Victoria, British Columbia. And I, and our team took second there and I took third there. So you could say that my world, um, you know, career kind of started <laughs> off with a bang. I had a, a ton of medals right off the bat. Um, and things have slowed down a little bit since then, <laughs> but, uh, but for the most part, man, I just eat that stuff up. I just eat it up. I love it. 
And, and what are the chances of that? I mean, your first world event, and it's in the U.S. And you probably, as a high schooler, you're like, yeah, going to the world <laughs> championships. And, oh, wait, I don't get to travel. Your parents, on the other hand, are like, oh, thank God, it's going to be way cheaper. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was San Diego, so it was still quite the trip. But, yeah, it was, um, it was definitely... Um, I mean, I wasn't disappointed because it was my first world event. And I think that no matter where that ends up being located, it's still like this totally overwhelming and awesome experience. And having it be in the U.S., there's an additional comfort level that came with that. Right. So it was actually really good, kind of a good way to ease myself into the whole world circuit. And, And since then, I've done more world championships. I've done um, the World Cup circuit that started. And I think 2006 was when that it was inaugurated. So it's been going on for over 10 years now, um, which was really the first time we were able to um, meet international archers more regularly than once every year or once every two years at a world championship event. When the World Cup came about, they started having four events or five events every year. And so I think if you actually, it's, I think it's interesting if you look at the scores of, of like the world championships and the world events and things like that. And, and look at the trend. As soon as the World Cup came into place, everybody's scores went up because all of a sudden we weren't shooting in our own little pond and just every once in a while seeing each other. We were seeing each other all the time. And the entire level of archery and precision and accuracy went up at that time. It's really interesting um, looking back on it now having having this 20 year perspective on where we've been and where we are um it's it's very interesting to watch how things have changed over the years and how the level of of competitive archery has risen over those years well that's awesome and it totally makes sense with you know having more world events you have more competitions that you're practicing for and and you know if if you have an annual event like before the world cup came around it's you know that one event a year that you're working towards versus multiple events and multiple opportunities to meet your competitors and, and actually perform against them um and, and so that's great. It makes total sense. And it's interesting. I didn't even know that the World Cup started in 2006. So that's that's interesting to know. Um, so you talk about the World Cup. A couple of questions. One, do you ever tell people you competed in the World Cup and they think you're a soccer player? And two, um, <laughs> can you explain a little bit about about what, you know, how do you qualify for the World Cup? You said there's four or five events. How, you know, how what is the setup of the World Cup and, and actually getting to go shoot there? And how do they do the standings? And, and how does that whole series work? <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. So in answer to your first question, no one has ever accused me of being a soccer player. You can pretty much just look at me and say she doesn't run. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, so, so, so no, um, I've never been confused uh, by that. But do, I do I do often say um, the World Cup archery. I usually add the archery into it to to like um, basically pre-explain that it's not the same as soccer. Um, but yeah, the, the, the to get into the World Cups, it's interesting. There are actually two different World Cup circuits. There's an indoor circuit um, that that uh, runs on like a normal, like almost like a Vegas face. It's a little different than a Vegas face, but similar to a Vegas face. 
And those, um, they're a free-for-all. If you want to go, you can pay your entry fee, you can buy your ticket to Marrakesh, Morocco, and you can go. Um, You don't have to have any kind of prior experience or prior qualifications or anything for the indoor. But for the outdoor, um, the the outdoor target archery, it's very prestigious and it's extremely difficult to get on the U.S. team. They are limited to four people per division. So there's 16 athletes total, four in each of women's and men's recurve and compounds. So that's the athletes on the team and then associated coaches come with us. But to make one of those four spots, you have to compete in what, what the U.S. calls the USAT circuit, the United States Archery Team Circuit. And you, it's, a, it's basically a rolling, calendar, um, a rolling calendar set of tournaments. So there are, four qualific- there are four USAT events and the nationals, and you have to place well enough at each one of those to be in the top four, and then you get um, invited to go to these World Cups. So um, it's actually, it's almost harder to get on the team and to get the opportunity to go to a World Cup than it is to do well at a World Cup because um, the the depth of talent in the U.S. is so great right now that I'm, I'm fighting for it. I'm the fourth spot this year. This is the first time I've ever not been first or second. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I just barely squeaked into the fourth slot to go. And so for me, it, it's... Not so much a wake up call because I we have so many really good people, but it's it's very much just a statement of the level of competition that we're bringing to the field. That's amazing. I mean, for four slots in the U.S. out of the entire tournament archery community in the U.S., I mean that is that is a difficult team to make. So then, once you make the team, once you compete in those USAT shoots and, and you get your ranking, and if you're in the top four, you make the team. Then when do your when does your World Cup tournament series start, and how often are those tournaments? And, and you said there's four or five. Is there a set number a year? I mean, what's that experience like? <laughs> Um, so yeah, the, so basically you attend the USAT events, you basically have to attend them for the year prior. And then at the end of the year, after all five events at the USAT, um, level are complete, they have the list of people who are candidates for next year and, and, and it's a rolling year. So, um, at the end of this year, I was in the fourth slot, which means I will get first right of refusal to go to the first two World Cups. And then depending on how you do at those World Cups and the intervening USAT events, your rank might change or you might. <laughs> so there's there's actually a really complicated. Well, it's not complicated, complicated, but it's reasonably complicated calculation to determine who's going to go to the third one versus who's going to go to the fourth one. And if there's a world championship event, sometimes they'll choose to take the world championship team instead of going off the rankings. And so, so it's actually a little bit anxiety inducing because, um, the rules are all laid out. It's not that, that we don't know what's going on, but um, things can change so rapidly that like you really got to kind of keep an eye on it. Well, if somebody does this or if this person doesn't attend or if this person does attend, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of thinking involved. In, and um, so whenever I get the invitation, I'm always really relieved because I'm like, whew, OK, I got it all right. <laughs> and all the, <laughs> all the things showed up like they were supposed to. And now I get to go. 
Um, so yeah, those tournaments, the, the world cup tournaments are throughout the year they're, they're basically in the same season as the outdoor season. So the first one is usually in April or May. The second one is in June or July. Um, you know, they usually end in September. Sometimes they'll end, um, a little earlier in August. It depends on the year. It depends on Olympics. It depends on a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so we're going to those tournaments kind of in and amongst the USAD events and the U S nationals and all this stuff. It's, it's the calendar juggling is quite um, intense. And very often, for example, last year, we left directly from our national tournament to go to Berlin for the fourth world cup. Like there wasn't, there wasn't time to go home. You basically ended on Saturday and Sunday morning, you got on a plane. Oh, wow. That's insane. So if you weren't at home in Indianapolis. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's a lot of of tournament shooting (laughs) all in a row. Yeah, um, the the schedule gets pretty crazy. I during the during the summer tournament season, I usually count my time as sleeps at home. How many sleeps at home do I get before <laughs> I have to go somewhere else? And if oh. I can get more than five in a row, that's a really great week. <laughs> oh man, that I mean, it's definitely a busy lifestyle. I mean, I I know just from watching some of my friends who travel to those international shoots, it really is like they live on an airplane more than they live at home. It seems. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It is. So I guess, you know, talking about the, the World Cup shoots and you you've won a couple world tournaments, correct? Yes. And which ones which ones have you, have you gotten yeah, that gold medal in? Um, well, I have won the gold medal um like, well, again, there's team and individual, right? So I have several team gold medals in world championships and actual official target world championships, um, indoor and outdoor. And then I have an individual gold medal at um, a world field competition, which I think your, um, your constituents would be interested in. We haven't actually talked about what, what is field archery yet. We've talked mostly about target archery. Um, I also have two World Cup um, gold medal, like finalist, like done, you won the whole kit and caboodle. Um, because those four tournaments, um, those four world cup tournaments, I didn't get into this, right. The four world cup tournaments are actually qualifiers for a finals event. And so if you make the top eight in those four tournaments, you go to this finals event. And then when you win the finals event, that's what I would call the big money, right. That's the big deal. Um, so I've won that finals event twice, and the, and the world field championship once and a couple of team and I've never won an individual medal in or an individual gold medal in a, in a world championship. So that's still on my to-do list. <laughs> well, I feel like your to-do list is, has a lot higher ambition than my to-do list. My to-do list is like, take the trash out, uh, maybe sight my bow in a little bit more. <laughs> Well, so when you're going to these events, I know one of the things you had mentioned um, to me sort of in your bio was was that one of your, I guess, stronger points is the mental game. And I'm sure when you're shooting a world archery event, the mental game is a huge piece of it. So can you kind of explain a little bit what you mean about your mental game and, and how you manage your mental game? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's funny because almost everyone will agree that archery is 90% mental, but almost no one knows what that really means or practices for it. Um, I think it means so you have my to be mental, mental game, when to I, shoot when archery. I, 
<laughs> that is also, I think, true. <laughs> um, so when I when I say mental game, what I actually mean is um, basically the mental process that it takes to shoot a shot. So for me, it's not about the situation or or anything like that. It's about the series of steps and the mental things that I do in order to make sure that that shot is 100% consistent all the way through the tournament. So, like, I'm going to speak about this in some idealized fashion, like I always do this, right? <laughs> but the truth is, it's really hard. And it's something I'm always working on. And so it's not, you, when, when I speak about it, it seems like, oh, you've got it all figured out, but I really don't. Um, but the answer is, is definitely, it's a series of mental, for me, it's words. Um, not everybody uses words, but I use a series of words that basically cue me to the different steps in my shot. And if I get to a step and I say the word and something doesn't feel right in my body, that tells me that I need to let that down and start over. And so it's it's a tool that I use to to diagnose or prevent a bad shot, but also to make sure that my my conscious mind is focused on the things I can control when I'm in a high pressure situation, because you can't control what that other person is doing. You can't control the wind. You can't control the crowd. You can't control anything. All you can do is say, I need to make my shot. And so this mental game is the thing I use to remind myself and to work on and to make my shot every single time. Got it. Okay, so in in your series of words that you have to kind of walk you through your shot every time, how many how many steps or words do you have in there? Because I've heard of this strategy before, and I know some people just have a few words, some people have ten. Um, you know, if it's your your secret <laughs> process, you don't have to share the words. But about how many steps are there in this shot <laughs> process that you go through? <laughs> I don't think there's any secret. There's no secrets here. It's not. Um, I think it's a totally personal. Um, it's a personal thing, right? How many words do you feel like you can you can focus on? Um, and they're obviously in a sequence, so one at a time. But if you have ten things to remember or three things to remember, it depends. I think also on where you are in your archery career, your process, your coaching, whatever, there might be one thing that you really need to focus on. And so maybe just one word is what you need at the time. Um, so for me, from from right now and, and for quite a few years now, I've had seven. So, and I can even tell you what they are. They are um, seat, which means put my hand in the bow the same way every single time. Draw and settle. Um, so draw, it's kind of like two words, but it's kind of like one because I'm drawing the bow and I'm also dropping my shoulder in. Um, if you see, um, if you ever watch my draw cycle, I do it a little bit different than other people as well. So I'll draw the bow back and you'll, you can actually see my bow shoulder drop down and in. So that's draw and settle. Then set is me acquiring the target. So, um, when I draw back, I try and draw back perfectly level, regardless of where the target is. And so set is for me to find the target. And so you'll notice a lot of the times, especially if you watch my draw cycle in a target tournament, I actually set up kind of below the target. And so you'll see me tilt backwards a little bit to raise and acquire the target and then relax, which is just sit there and enjoy the view for a second, because um, I had target panic for quite a few years. And my way of I had the kind where it was like, see the target, make it go right so for me, this is always my step to like, see the target. It doesn't have to go. It can just be there and be this beautiful dot in this beautiful circle. And don't even worry about it. 
So seat, draw and settle, set, relax, then pull, which is my execute, right? So like I've settled in, I see my dot, I see the, I see the, um, the bubble, everything's where it should be. So pull is execute. And then, um, pin on is just remember to follow through at the target. That's it. Seven words. And somehow those seven words are your key to winning all these, all these world cup events and participating in all these world cup events. <laughs> yeah. And I think, but I think everybody's words are going to be different. Everybody's steps are going to be different and different. And, and my words and steps have been different at different times in my life when I've been working on different things or, you know, like when, when there's something you really, the power of a mental game is that not only does it help you prevent, help prevent you from making terrible shots, um, and help you recognize where things go off the rails, but it also um, provides you a tool for really emphasizing the things that you need to work on. So if I if I noticed in my videoing or something that I had an inconsistency somewhere, I could introduce a word to help me really focus on that area. Or I could even emphasize a word I already have. I could like mentally shout it to remind myself this is what you're supposed to be doing and you're you're not doing it as strongly as you usually do. So there's all sorts of ways you can use this mental program, mental game to tweak your own physical form. Um, but I think its strongest asset is its ability to make a tournament situation to bring you back from like um, being outside yourself in a tournament situation where there's high pressure and being like, oh, yeah, wait a second. None of that stuff matters. It's all what's inside me. And the inside stuff is what's going to make that arrow hit the center, not all these other things. Absolutely. And you, you said there that sometimes, you know, you mentally shout it. I, I, for a second there, missed the part where you said mentally shout it. And I'm like, man, I, I've been with at to, I've been to many <laughs> tournaments with you, but I don't think I've ever seen you on the line suddenly yell, draw and settle. <laughs> like, I don't know how that would fly in you, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> right no no it's definitely inside my own head you know we all have those voices right oh absolutely and you know it's you're right like whether it's a seven word sequence or you know ten words or one word it, it's still important and I like how you mentioned that sometimes there's just one you need to focus on I remember a tournament I don't I don't remember if it was SoCal Showdown or Arizona Cup last year or Reading or something but I was having major issues with target panic like you said it was see the target go not see the target relax and, and execute a shot perfectly it was see the target and go and so I ended up writing on my bow there on the riser let down just that's that was my one or my technically my two words for that tournament was every time before I made a shot I'd look at my bow where it said let down and then I'd keep those words in my head as a reminder that if I needed to that was an option letting down was an option mm-hmm so I guess I, I, I just love our conversation so far. I'm learning a lot. Um, so you <laughs> talked about the World Cup tournaments, about your, your mental game and how you've gotten that under control. And um, kind of, you know, we just talked about one of your steps there would be letting the pin settle on the target. Um, you also mentioned in your bio that you have what some people would call like a unique type of aiming system. So can you explain, you know, what my understanding of aiming is pin on the target, you know, or dot on the target. That's, that's how I aim. What is your unique aiming system that you use? 
Well, I mean, it, if you boil it down, it is that simple. But here's the here's the crux of the situation. So aiming is an active process, right? It's a process of focusing your energy and attention on where the dot is in relation to the target, the thing that you want to hit. Um, so I actually, I refuse to call it aiming. I don't aim. I don't aim because I do not put my attention there. My attention is on all of the physical motions and activities in my muscles that are required to execute the shot. If I actually put my attention on the target, I'm screwed. (laughs) And so it's really hard. I, it happens, right? Again, this is, this is my constant struggle. It happens. And as soon as it happens, it's really hard to get out of, but um, that's where my mental thing comes in. Right. Um, So for me, um, aiming is a giant no, no, (laughs) but passively looking at the target, that's okay. All right. Because obviously you can't just close your eyes. That's not how this works either. So, so my frame of reference is, um, is that I acquire the target during my set. That's the time I'm actually looking, right? I'm looking and I'm putting the dot where I want the, the, the arrow to go. Um, and I'm checking my level and making sure everything is good. But after that, it's like that, that infomercial set it and forget it. I don't think about it again because my brain and your brain, and I think pretty much everybody's brain will actually automatically want to keep that tiny little dot in the middle of the circle or the big dot in the middle of the circle or the circle around the circle, or I don't know how this works in 3d. Sorry, (laughs) but, but for me, I'm almost always looking at circles. (laughs) All right. And so your, my, my brain and most people's brain will want to make that look nice, right? The circles go around the circles and the dot goes in the middle and everything looks really good. Yeah. And so once I've, once I've put that there, I don't have to think about it anymore. I, and, and aiming is like a conscious correction, like, oh, it's dropping a little low. I'm going to try and push it up again. If you don't try, it will go up automatically. It really will. So for me, it's a passive look. I see the target. I see that the dot is moving a little bit. It's got a nice slow figure eight, and that's all good. Oh, it went down a little bit. I'm just looking, and I'm still executing, and that's okay because when it dips down a little bit, my brain, my unconscious brain, is going to be faster than my conscious brain at correcting for that. So if you're not trying to correct, it will actually correct itself faster. You're, so my my theory so right. of aiming is all about passiveness. <laughs> Absolutely, because you're right. The, I mean, the human brain and the human body itself is is designed to you know find symmetry, right? That's why like people you know studies show that people find those with symmetrical faces more attractive. You know, it, it's the human brain is designed to find mm-hmm. that symmetry. So the circle inside the circle inside the circle is the most symmetrical you can get. Um, you know, symmetrical around every axis of that circle. So you've totally Mm -hmm. just redesigned the way I look at aiming or not aiming now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, keeping in mind too, that it doesn't work for everybody, right? This, I mean, there are lots of people who will tell you aim harder, aim harder, right? Look, look harder, push it, you know, try, you know, centered, you know, like, and and I I think that works for some people. It's just never worked for me. And so um, when I, when I come up against someone who's who like wants some coaching and wants some some guidance, I say, let's try this other way for a change. Rather than putting all of your focus and all of your attention on making that dot be in the center, 
let's take all the attention and all the focus off of that and put it back here at the line in your body where the shot actually happens. Right? So I don't think it works for everybody, but it certainly works for me. And it's uh, it's just a different way, I think, of looking at things. And it has its weaknesses, um, especially in the, on the women's side of thing, beca- things, because I am um, lucky. I have a man's draw length at 28 and a half inches. I shoot a man's poundage at about at 60 pounds. Um, so I can get away with it because I can put my dot in the center and the wind doesn't blow me nearly as far as it does other women. I also um, I use the bubble to adjust for wind rather than trying to aim off. So where this breaks down is if you have to aim off, if you have to aim somewhere other than where all of the planets align in the circles and <laughs> the circles. Right. It's a it's a. <laughs> It's a much harder thing to do. So for me, in stupid wind conditions where I can't bubble enough or I can't offset enough, I those are the conditions I really struggle in. You're and yeah, you're right. It, if you're always having to aim in the middle or always you know always letting it settle in the middle and not worrying about actually aiming, then yeah, wind wind can certainly be challenging. Um, but like you said, mm-hmm. there's that benefit of longer draw length, higher poundage, and I kind of have the same thing. I don't have quite a, as long of a draw length as you, but poundage, same thing. I'm shooting my target bow at right at just under 60 pounds, and then my hunting bow is even higher. It's, I think, 67 or something right now. So when I picked up my target bow, I was like, oh, man, this, this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, it is. It's a it's a different way of, of aiming or not aiming, and, and you're right, it might work for some people it might work for others but the the concept of not aiming but letting your you know subconscious mind settle for that symmetrical circle i think is a a fantastic thing for people to try yeah and i've I've tried it with several students and and some people um, find it's easier to do with the small dot with a big dot with a circle you know like it's really all about making it comfortable to look at and so what's the what's the best compromise for making everything really comfortable to look at? Because then if you're comfortable in what you see, then it's so much easier to bring your attention back to executing and using your muscles properly and all of that stuff. So so come what April at the Arizona Cup or whenever the Arizona Cup is scheduled for this year, when I'm on the line shooting with my eyes closed and people are like, what are you doing? Jamie told me to. Jamie said, don't aim. <laughs> Don't aim. That's right. Yeah. Jamie told me just don't aim. Safety first, though. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I I have just absolutely loved all the info you shared. And I know I'm certainly going to be working on, you know, my my mental list of words beyond just my one word of let down. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm really excited we were able to get you on the podcast today. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy and, uh, and I look forward to seeing you on the line. Yes, absolutely. I will see you at the next shoot.